Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest voxcasting either side of the breach. The death of the Governor-General had far-reaching consequences in Malifaux. Those consequences are both political and magical. On today's episode, we pause from our larger narrative to catch up with some of the most important people in Malifaux and discover what the future has in store for them now that the Governor-General is dead. I hope you enjoy these Guild and Resurrectionist vignettes right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Vignettes, the new, smaller, more delicate form of the Vigs you all know and love. They're suitable for a more sophisticated lifestyle. Try a pack of Vignettes today. the death of the governor, Lucius surrounded himself with the finer things in life, playing up his role as a bureaucrat who just earned a promotion on account of his superior's sudden and unexpected death. It was a ruse, all part of the charade that he lived and breathed, but a pleasant one nonetheless. When word reached him that someone had discovered the Nythera ruins in the Badlands, he took stock of the situation. It was unlikely that any of the humans could open the vault-like structure. But then again, it had been unlikely that a human would manage to nearly become a tyrant as well. Deciding to cover his bases, Lucius dispatched some of his minions to locate a mercenary who had returned from the ruins, hoping to learn more about the situation. Unfortunately, the Ten Thunders snatched up the mercenary first, keeping him well beyond Lucius' reach. By the time he had mounted an appropriate response to the situation, Nythera had opened and Titania had appeared outside his office window, talking about unity beneath her rule and the war she intended to wage against the awakening tyrants. Despite the threats surrounding him, Lucius couldn't help but find his situation amusing. He had successfully maneuvered the Governor-General out of the picture, only for a more dangerous threat to appear and turn to him for advice and assistance. Lucius was comfortable playing that role. He was already formulating schemes and contingencies, intended to blunt the Autumn Queen's influence, and to turn her strengths towards his own purposes. Perdita met with the Governor-General shortly before his death, but it wasn't a pleasant meeting. She returned to Latigo, where she took stock of their supplies and ammunition, and debated whether or not the Ortegas could survive without Guild support. His subsequent death rendered her concerns moot. However, in his absence, 
The accountants and quartermasters of the guild continued to send shipments of ammunition, food and information about reported Neverborn sightings south to Latigo. Just as Pedita was beginning to think that things were returning to normal, however, a bevy of gremlins appeared on the outskirts of Latigo, all of them making loud noises and rude gestures in an attempt to attract the attention of her family. Not giving the vermin much credit, Pedita sent a group of pistoleros out to deal with them, and they all came back with horrified stories of undead abominations trudging toward Latigo. It wasn't the first time that Pedita had fought the creatures that crawled out of the crater left behind by the Red Cage, and with a curse, she gathered up the rest of her family and led them into the bayou. There were far more of the undead creatures than she had ever seen, and though they managed to deal with the bulk of the abominations, for every two they killed, three more crawled their way out of the crater. Realizing that they would have to find the source of the abominations to truly deal with the threat, Pedita returned to Latigo leaving Francisco, Santiago, and a small force of pistoleros behind to hold the monsters at bay. There had to be some clue as to where the vile creatures were coming from, and she was determined to find it, and end the threat of the Red Cage once and for all. Sonia Crid was in her office when the Governor-General's ritual of ascension spiralled out of control. Screaming, she fell to the ground, pressing her hands tightly against the steel mask on her face as it grew hot enough to burn the flesh from her palms. Then, suddenly, Cherufe was free, and everything was aflame. The witchling handlers she'd been speaking with just moments prior were reduced to charred skeletons in the blink of an eye. She felt the tyrant swell with etheric energy, more powerful than ever before, and in the last few moments of conscious thought, Sonya realized that the world was ending. Bloated on etheric power, Jerufe was ascending, and everything and everyone in Malifaux would burn in its wake. But something else was happening. Like two matches flaring up right next to each other, Jerufe's essence was mingling with the essence of another ascending tyrant, their flames combining into something larger and more powerful than either. Sonya felt something pulling at the tyrant, clawing its way free from her soul, and a foreign emotion flashed across its thoughts. Panic. In the next moment, Cherufe was torn from her, ripped from every cell in her body as it desperately flailed at her soul, treading it into tatters as the tyrant tried to maintain a hold on its corporeal anchor. The sundering was over in the time it took for Sonya's heart to beat once, but to her... It was a lifetime of torment. Sonya collapsed to the ground in a charred heap, her office burning around her. Slowly she opened her eyes and caught sight of her steel mask on the floor next to her, its shape warped by intense heat. It was over, she realized. Cherufe was gone. And that terrified her. When she learned of the news of the governor's death, Lady Justice knew that it was only a matter of time until the Resurrectionists made their move. She sent her recruiters out into the city, 
seeking out those with a talent for necromantic magic who had not yet turned their powers toward animating the dead. When she finally received word of the zombie horde shuffling across the central slums, its numbers were far greater than she had expected. Drawing upon the guild guard, she led the military forces of the guild against the undead army, hacking countless shuffling corpses apart as riflemen and lumbering constructs supported her on every side. It wasn't enough. The undead horde was poised to overwhelm their battle lines when its southern flank suddenly collapsed. Justice didn't know what had happened to weaken the zombies, but she seized the opportunity just the same, ordering peacekeepers and mounted guards to focus their efforts on that part of the battlefield. She could sense when the enemy necromancer withdrew, as the undead around her began to slow and weaken, allowing the guild to reassert their momentum and win the day. There had been something familiar about the way the zombies were fighting, and after going through her records, Justice realized that the resurrectionist who had been commanding them could only have been the same one that she had fought at the ruined observatory. That battle, the one that more than any other had nearly killed her, had never sat quite right with her, and now she knew why. Determined to not let such a powerful necromancer slip through her fingers, Lady Justice turned all her resources toward finding the unknown resurrectionist and ending him. In the wake of the Governor-General's death, Hoffman carried on in a practical manner. He reorganized the train schedules making them much more efficient. He inspected each of the various guild-funded factories in the industrial zone, suggesting improvements that would increase efficiency and reduce waste. Hoffman also made improvements to the guild's ether boxes, making it more difficult for arcanists to listen in on their transmissions, and generally helped to reduce the chaos of the city after the death of its leader. With each report that crossed his desk, however, Hoffman began to notice a number of strange irregularities. People that seemed to be in two places at once. Lawyers and guardsmen who never actually seemed to have arrived in Malifaux, and other stranger anomalies. The guild was a machine of people and paperwork, but it was still a machine. And Hoffman could feel that some of the gears were turning in the wrong direction. And that made him very, very curious. After the new Governor-General arrived, Hoffman placed a full report of the irregularities on the man's desk. The next morning, Hoffman stepped into his office to find Franco Marlowe waiting for him. The conversation between the two men was both frank and refreshing, and they both realized that they had found something of a kindred spirit in the other. By the end of the meeting, the amalgamation office had received a significant increase in its budget, allowing Hoffman to expand it from a forgotten little office meant to keep him under the guild's control to a legitimate special division, on par with the death marshals or witch hunters. Resurrectionist Vignettes In a way, the death of the Governor-General had been a boon for McMorning. In the chaos that followed, 
Everyone seemed to forget about the morgue and its slightly eccentric coroner. The girl was simply too preoccupied to pay much attention to anything going on within its own walls. He took advantage of their distraction, letting his helpful nurses fill out coroner reports as he focused on his research. Years earlier, Nicodem had brought him an ancient corpse that had been fitted with strange mechanical augmentations, and it was to these preserved remains that Douglas McMorning now returned. Whether it was the voices in his head finally revealing their secrets, or simply the focus that came with not having to put up with the distraction of guild paperwork, McMorning finally achieved a breakthrough in his research, and learned why the corpse refused to decay. The next day, a grinning McMorning visited Sonia Crid's home, and while Sebastian distracted her nurse, he had a frank and personal conversation with the horribly burned woman. He could repair the damage to her face and body, he claimed, taking away the pain, and with it the need for the morphine that clouded her thoughts. All she had to do was sign a few requisition forms, and he'd begin preparing for the operations right away. Sonia was reaching toward the clipboard before he had finished talking. The next day, the first of many Arcanist prisoners were transferred to the morgue for vivisection. He needed body parts that were accustomed to channeling etheric energy, and in her desperation, Miss Crid had given him access to a whole prison filled with test subjects. It was the dawn of a new era of necromancy, and McMorning was full of all sorts of new ideas. For Karai and Koku, the death of the Governor-General was like a strong punch to her gut. Four years ago, her lover had been murdered while protecting her from the Governor's assassins, setting her on the path of revenge that she had dutifully walked since that day. But now, that had been taken from her. She wandered the streets for days afterward, trying to determine whether she felt angry that she had not been the one to kill him, or pleased that he was finally dead. In truth, she found it difficult to feel much about anything. The burning ball of anger that she'd built her life around had been taken from her, leaving only emptiness in its place. Despite that emptiness, however, she was still busy. Working with her friend Molly, the two of them had all but put an end to the larger forced prostitution rings in the city. The Grey Lord, the Rearing Unicorn, and the Silver Talisman Club had all been washed away in a river of blood, leaving only the Chi and Gong. Karai had a history with the establishment, but its time was coming, as surely as the setting of the sun. As she stood across the street from the establishment, watching the patrons come and go and marking their faces, a woman in a dark cloak approached Karai with an offer. She claimed to be acting on behalf of a group who called themselves the Court of Two, who had been watching Karai for some time. The Court needed Karai's assistance to help them harness the spirits of the dead on a mass scale. Karai was unimpressed with the offer, until the woman added that the Court had discovered a ritual that would return a spirit to life, though none of them were capable of performing it. Heart fluttering at the possibility of seeing her lover once again, 
Harai agreed to meet with the woman's masters and discuss terms. Nicodem saw the death of the Governor-General as a moment of opportunity. In the weeks that followed, he hunted down many lesser resurrectionists in the quarantine zone, killing them and absorbing their undead minions into his own growing horde. When the time was right, he marched on the eastern slums, sending its residents screaming in terror as they fled from his shambling army. The zombies focused on the railroads, tearing up every rail they came across in order to limit the guild's ability to rapidly redeploy to the area. With each killed resident or guardsman, Nicodem's army grew until it seemed as if it would be unstoppable by the time it reached the industrial zone. What Nicodem hadn't counted on was the intervention of the Ten Thunders. While his zombies were pushing westward against the guild barricades, the crime syndicate struck against the horde's southern flank, felling zombies by the score with precision sniping and strike-and-fade attacks. By the time Nicodem realized what was happening and adjusted his tactics, his southern flank had collapsed, and the guild was pressing their advantage to the west. Rather than remain behind to fight a losing battle, Nicodem retreated from the fighting, leaving his zombies behind to stall the advance of the guild's forces. It had been a costly loss for him. It would take months, if not years, to judge up that many zombies again, but an enlightening one nonetheless. More importantly, perhaps, it had revealed the presence of a legitimate threat in the Little Kingdom. The Ten Thunders had always been an annoyance, but with the true scope of their power revealed to him, Nicodem realized that he could no longer ignore the crime syndicate. With all the chaos around him, Seamus kept on keeping on. Of all the people who'd been blessed with the ability to manifest into avatars, he felt the loss of that power in the wake of the Governor-General's death most keenly. Had it not been for the small object given to him by the Carrion Emissary, the object that was safely tucked away beneath the floorboards of his favourite hideout, he might even have questioned the terrible purpose he had set before himself so many years earlier. Instead, he was hopeful. The emissary had shown him that, while the path had changed and he had taken a right blow to his soft parts, the road was still in sight. The only thing that had changed was how difficult it would be for Seamus to walk it. Of course, Seamus had never been fond of taking road trips by himself. So after a brief visit to see whether or not his Molly had regained her wits, and a much lengthier escape from a deformed hulking brute that seemed quite determined to keep Seamus away from its mistress, he decided to do a bit of recruiting. The papers called him the Star Slasher, thinking that he was some new killer that had become obsessed with the showgirls at the Star Theatre. Had he not been so engrossed with prettying up his new girls, he might even have been a bit offended that after so many years, and so very many bodies, the guild still didn't recognise the artistry of his work. His new showgirls in tow, Seamus returned to the business of having fun and leaving some good-looking corpses behind him. 
The issue of what to do with his new bauble still lingered in the back of Seamus' mind. But as far as he was concerned, he had all the time in the world to answer the question. Much like Seamus, Molly found it difficult to care too much about the Governor-General's death. Truthfully, she was too preoccupied with her own troubles to spare him much thought at all. Her only living friend, Karai, was spiralling downward into deep depression. Seamus kept showing up at inopportune times to take her back, and Philip had been stolen from his nanny by people in the employ of the Guild. All in all, it was a rather unfortunate series of events, and if there was any silver lining to her situation, it was that Molly had at least grown accustomed to such happenings. Seamus was a persistent annoyance, and Karai eventually became distracted with a necromantic cabal that wanted to raise up an entire army of enslaved ghosts. But Philip was just ahead, and couldn't care for himself. Dreading what sort of dreadful things the death marshals might be doing to her companion in unfortunate undeath, Molly attempted to infiltrate the guild to learn where they were keeping him. The weakest link in the guild's security was, coincidentally, the one with which Molly was the most familiar, the Malifaux Tattler. Disguising herself as a freelance reporter, she was surprised when the new editor-in-chief, Nellie Cochran, hired her on the spot and gave her three different assignments to finish before the end of the week. Molly kept to herself after that, relying on perfume and makeup to conceal her undead condition as she worked to uncover where the guild had hidden Philip. Despite the false name on her bylines and the temporary nature of her employment, she found a great deal of pleasure in working again, so much so that she began to consider staying on with the Tattler after rescuing Philip. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for more Tales of Malifaux.